Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to this event uh, in which we will explore spaces of suspended movement. Uh, I would first like to thank the Festival of Ideas and the Department of uh, Architecture here in Cambridge for uh, supporting this event and allowing it to actually happen. So my name is Irit, as uh, uh, Anna told you. I'm researching camps in the Department of Architecture in Cambridge, and today we have a wonderful panel which will discuss camp spaces, uh, such as refugee camps or, uh, and jungles, from different perspectives. This is where refugees, asylum seekers, and other people on the move are suspended for long periods of time, separated from the rest of, the, of society and from the ability to live normal lives. These are very different spaces. So let's have a look. Um, we'll have uh, some footage of the jungle in Calais. Uh, now behind me. So these are very different spaces. Some of them are created uh, top-down by the UN or by governments and by munis municipal authorities, and others are created bottom-up by refugees and by those uh, who support them. But these are all spaces where people are stuck in a limbo. They cannot go back to where they escaped from, and they cannot move forward to find a new home. These are spaces of control, abandonment, and violence, but some of them are also spaces of great solidarity and care. Each of the members of our panel today have a very specific experience related to these uh, spaces. So I'll introduce them now one by one, uh, and they will uh, speak on these places after that. So Grania Hassett is an architect and the leader of the Color Builds. She created key communal projects in the jungle, uh, in Kale, and she will talk about them uh, this evening and about the meaning of, of what, is, what does it mean of, to build in a camp. Dr. St Tom Scott-Smith uh, is an associate professor of refugee studies and forced migration at the, the Refugee Study Center in the U University of Oxford. He specializes in the study of humanitarian relief, and today he will focus on the relationship between politics and design in camp spaces. Beshwar Hassan is a musician from Iraqi Kurdistan, who arrived to the UK 28 days ago, after 14 months living in the camps uh, in Europe. You can read in The Guardian about his fascinating uh, and difficult story of how he crossed the continent and visited more than 70 refugee camps, trying to find his mother after being separated in Greece. And Dan Ellis, chair of Cambridge Refugee Resettlement Campaign and a committee member of Camp Crag, Cambridge Calais Refugee Action Group, who will talk about the Cambridge connection to refugees and to the jungle and on his work in building shelters uh, in, in, in Calais, in the jungle. So a very busy hour. We'll first hear the different perspectives of, on these spaces, and after that we'll have a bit of time for questions and uh, hopefully a discussion. Uh, so, Grain, uh, the floor uh, is yours. Uh, and, yeah, we'll hear about uh, uh, communal uh, projects in Cali. Yeah. Okay, um, good evening, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. I'm going to... Um, 
not so much talk actually about building buildings in the camp. I am an architect, I'm a practicing architect in Dublin and I'm an academic as well. I teach at the University of Limerick, uh, the new school of architecture that we founded there 11 years ago. I've been working for the past year in and around Calais camp and I want to talk, uh, I suppose as a, as a practicing architect and as a designer and as a builder to some extent, I've noticed a lot about the interaction between the various systems in the camp, the systems of provision of things generally, uh, of aid generally, and uh, I suppose the comparison between the provision of these systems and how I would build normally. So I want to talk, put the focus on to systems generally, but because this has got to be a small, short uh, presentation, I'm going to actually not speak for the first couple of slides and I'm going to play some music for you. I'm not going to play some music, I'm going to, it's going to be on my phone. Um, and you're going to have to do some reading, okay? But we'll stop it, don't worry about it, after about 10 slides. So I guess what I want to say initially is that these are the kinds of images that we're very used to seeing in the media of Cali Camp. Images of violence, of, of, of ter terrorising type situations, images of young men in seemingly difficult positions. Um, this is a fire that took place in the jungle in May, June, I think I was there. Um, can't remember the exact date. It was the end of the academic year in Ireland. And uh, 250 Sudanese people lost their homes and 150 Eritrean people lost their homes on that night. But there are also a number of other voices and sounds that we hear, I suppose, in the jungle and that I want to just bring to you now. And one of them is this one. And we'll move on. Okay, so that's the first talk I've ever done where I haven't actually spoken. Um, 
This is what the French authorities have provided. It's called the Container Camp, and it was, they started to build it in October of uh, last year, and they finished it at the end of March of last year, that's to say after the winter had ended. It, it can house 600 people, and each one will have 1.4 square metres, uh, that is, per person. There are no social spaces, and there's no permission to make social spaces. There's uh, cold showers here in the open container that you can see there, and there's no possibility of cooking either. And then, I suppose, if that, you've seen the first, last couple of slides, the provisions of the French state in camp, and if you want me to clarify the, the, the notion around in camp, I will later. This is instead what all of the grassroots volunteers are doing. So everything from trying to deal with child safety to reporting crime to rescue missions to police to staying alive, insulation, halal, meat and everything in between from drainage, civil engineering, energy provision and all of the rest of it. So the people involved are various and they work across, worked across Calais and Dunkirk camps. Dunkirk is a different story now and Besh could probably fill us in on that. And their work started as a tiny existing local charity, some Catholic existing French charities in the area, and then individual professional responders, Muslim responders, a lot of UK festival workers and uh, travellers. The formation then of Help Refugees was a significant moment in the camp, which is a UK-based charity working in partnership with local French charities. And what we saw, and I'll go through this a little bit in more detail so you don't have to strain on this, but I just want to show you the overall picture, is a series of, of I suppose, happier events um, on, in the coloured bubbles and the sadder and tougher times, which essentially were the writing of the history of the camp in the period from August uh, of last year uh, to, to, to where we are now. So a growth in population from 1,500 up to 10,000 uh, and a series of key moments in particular, the two fires early on, which allowed, meant that the grassroots organisation started to realise that although it had been haphazard in the beginning, that it needed to get very organised. And actually, unless we started to help provide shelter, food and fire brigade uh, support to the camp, a lot of people in the camp were potentially at risk of death. And during that period, we saw a number of other things happen. We saw the brutality of the French riot police, the CRS, increase in its intensity through particularly November and December on an almost daily basis. What we probably didn't realise was building at the same time was quite a significant resource of mafia, extortion, uh, and a series of other systems that would have underlied it and the grassroots volunteers would have had little understanding of. So all of these systems become more and more settled in place. We see then a, a very key watershed moment in the camp in, in, on the 29th of February when those two orders are given by those two women acting consort from Paris uh, and 50% of the camp is demolished. As I said, 3,000 people lost their homes on that day. And that's a moment, I think, that is a key watershed because that's a moment when the grassroots volunteer uh, structure, which had become ex increasingly professional throughout the month of November and December, really fell and faltered. Um, and we, in particular, on the building side, saw a real um, brokenheartedness, I think, amongst uh, a lot of the builders and, and a lack of interest in coming back again. Right now, at the moment, if the camp, North Camp, is demolished, we've estimated on the building side that there will be about 2 million of directly built uh, volunteer building materials destroyed and another 2 million which are refugee built or NGO installations. So these installations, it's not about the money, are highly significant just in terms of pure volume of what has built up over short periods of time. 
And on we go, so a faltering volunteer structure which gets strong occasionally through this summer and then suddenly falters again with dropping in donations, hunger in camp for the first time uh, among, as, uh, due to a mismatch between donations, the lack thereof, and the increase in population. And terribly sadly, another watershed moment where a child who has a legal right to be in the UK and whose papers are being delayed by the Home Office dies while trying to get to the UK illegally. And then there's other metrics. So, so that's the, there's a whole metric about the building of the history of the camp, the building of the grassroots movement, the key moments of that history, and, and the changes, I suppose, in culture that happened in and around and as a result of that history. But there's other ways of looking at it. One of them is economic. Um, the, this, this slide, we didn't title this properly, actually. It shouldn't say known costs of Calais. It should say known spends at Calais. So we are interested in, and there are some known spends which are the uh, amount uh, of money that is a direct injection into the local economy, for instance, in refugee meals, at even a fiver a day amounts to nearly four million. Uh, meals for the CRS police amounting to another four million nearly. Uh, all of the employment in the uh, Jules Ferry Centre, which is a reception centre that is there, and the building materials and the taxis and the, and the cafes and the restaurants and all of the rest of it that we use all of the time, not to mention the police use all of the time. So the camp is possible to describe for many metrics, but one of them I really like is this one, and it was particularly brought home to me when we got a call from a, a youngster that was 14 from Brussels, from the train station, he'd, and he had walked for two weeks. He had walked one week to get to uh, Norway and had been refooled, sent back at the border, and walked another week to get back again. And he called us from the train station in Brussels to know could we help him out and could we possibly come and get him. So the description of the camp in terms of distance that you travel on foot is very uh, particular partic for the people who live in the camp because the travel to truck parks or to the Eurotunnel entrance is very important pilgrimage that's made every night to try to, uh, well not to the truck parks but uh, because that's a much longer trip, to try to find a way of getting to the UK. And for a lot of people, when we ask them, when did you leave your country, they say five months ago, although if they come from Syria, usually it's something more like three weeks. The regulatory environment of the site, it's an illegal camp, as I said earlier. It's also an um, industrial chemicals, it has got hazardous industrial chemicals uh, status, and like a lot of sites that are like that, it also has an ecological um, protection status on it as well. The, um, neither fact have bothered immensely the French authorities who have raised huge parts of the camp for uh, security reasons. Uh, it is a landfill site, so when we dig, we find asbestos from time to time. There have been serious and systematic system failures um, in the uh, relationship between the, I suppose, the enactment of all sorts of human and civil rights in and around the camp. The most upsetting is clearly the failure to protect minors in practice. I, I work closely with Refugee Youth Service and we, many reports of child sexual abuse and child violence have been filed and none of them have been acted on, which is what this slide tells you. But we do see other systematic abuses all of the time. I mean, I've, I've mentioned the destruction of the, of the ecology. I've mentioned uh, earlier on you would have seen a notification about there being no fire service, no postal service, no cleaning service, no pest control service. Uh, people are discharged from hospital in the middle of the night. There is simply no recognition of the civil rights of these stateless people. We've also seen a very interesting phenomenon too, um, 
I'll leave this one up actually for a minute. Uh, re recently, and particularly over the last year, and it's played out again today, where the French courts have continually handed out very good and very, very humane judgments in favour of the protection of the people in the camp in particular processes. And we've seen consistently the French state find workarounds around those. So we find a very interesting relationship, which you also see like in the American Civil Rights Movement, where the court is, is, is defending the rights and the state is, 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 is finding a workaround around all of that. That's been challenged recently this week by the Council of Europe. Uh, it's taken them a year to come to this point. We have ple pleaded with them up until now, uh, and it's also been challenged by the French ombudsman, uh, who is called the Défenseur des Droits. Um, but a series of systematic lapses of, uh, of, uh, of system. You want me to stop? So anyway, uh, it's a camp of shacks and organizations and industries and ways of fastening doors and making tools and having social spaces. And we built some stuff, which I'm not going to talk about now because I'll talk about it under questioning. Um, building things in the camp is a very particular and very new discovery for um, somebody who hasn't done it before and you move through a series of discoveries around what's possible, around logistics, around robust systems and around building uh, under immense pressure um, on the material, on what's possible and indeed from the police while you're trying to build. This is the youth service, this is the most remarkable service I think in the place which is trying to on its own establish some form of child safety and child protection and hold both the British and the French authorities to account every day. Let's be done. Thank you very much. Very You're very welcome. Thank you very much. And Tom, uh, um, you're very welcome to uh, talk about yeah the relationship between uh, politics. It's working. The relationship between politics and uh, and design uh, in camps. Thank you. <coughs> okay. Uh, thanks very much. Irit. And uh, when Irit asked me to comment on the topic, uh, the spaces of suspended movement, I thought I'd spend a bit of time looking into the context about why these spaces exist and uh, linking the kind of shelters that you've seen on the screen with the political scene. And even though my academic research concerns emergency shelter, and I'm happy to talk about it in questioning, um, I think it's important to get some of these more general points out the way, first of all. This context, this context is really important for understanding it. And I think the first thing to say is that many of these places, these spaces of suspended movement, differ enormously. Uh, it's a difficult job comparing the jungle in Calais with, say, Tempelhof Airport in uh, Berlin or the camps in Greece. They've all emerged for very different reasons. They have very different characteristics. And even if they fulfill what looks like a similar function, i.e. providing shelter for refugees, um, they exist in different political contexts and they need to be understood in that context. But really, the main thing to say is that, that these are political spaces, fundamentally, and it's essential to understand each one differently. There's a real proliferation at the moment of architectural engagements with the refugee crisis, um, I have friends working in UNHCR who often receive new designs from architects for refugee houses. And sometimes these designs are hopelessly naive. 
Um, I think that particularly the attempt to design a universal refugee house that can be applied regardless of context or culture is particularly destined to fail. But at other times when architects are more careful and when design is more contextual, that's when it succeeds. And for me, it's the failure to understand the political nature of the, con of the situation that gets in the way of good design. Because very often there's a form of triumphalism or self-satisfaction about the idea of designing a really nice house for refugees. But in my opinion, this triumphalism often fails because of two misunderstandings. Firstly, the misunderstanding that this fundamentally is a humanitarian crisis. And I want to argue that it's not. It's a political crisis, and it needs to be understood as such. And secondly, the misunderstanding that this is a refugee crisis. And again, I want to argue that it's not. It's a hospitality crisis. When I say it's not a humanitarian crisis, I'm not denying that there are important humanitarian needs for refugees. But my point is that when we conceptualize the issue as a humanitarian one, there's a temptation that we can then solve it by providing things, by providing objects. It basically makes the situation, when we define it as a humanitarian problem, as one that's amenable to a very technical kind of solution. And this is a problem that goes back a long way in the history of humanitarian action, which is the subject of most of my research. Humanitarianism often involves isolating and then suppressing politics. It tends to transform people into passive recipients of aid, and it tends to respond to a problem that is fundamentally articulated around basic human needs, the need for shelter, for water, for warmth, for food, in isolation of the politics that's generated that situation. And of course, thinking like this makes it very easy to manage it, because all we need to do if we imagine it like this is, of course, design the shelter, provide the food or the warmth or the water. But the problem is when it depoliticizes the issue. And most significantly, the failure to confront the political roots of any humanitarian crisis can mean that aid agencies often end up in a situation where they're somehow collaborating or they end up complicit in the situation that's generating the crisis. So in the ethics of humanitarian aid, we have this famous dilemma surrounding what's known as the camp doctor. And the camp doctor is the humanitarian figure who's responsible for curing people, helping people, but in an environment where people are being contained, where they're being constrained, when they're in a camp, and that's the source, of course, of their suffering. So the best example is if you imagine yourself being a doctor, working maybe for Médecins Sans Frontières, and you're working in an immigration detention facility in Greece, and you're constantly treating the physical and the emotional symptoms of containment, of detention. And you're not only unable to actually address the cause of the problem, the containment, but in a very, very real sense, you're actually making that containment, that detention, easier and more humane for the authorities to pursue. You become complicit in the system. And originally, in fact, when the ICRC was founded, Florence Nightingale opposed it because she said it would make wars easier to fight. This dilemma, in a sense, is a continuation of her critique. And I'm sure many of you can imagine a similar situation for architects who might design camps or immigration facilities in a way that reduces immediate suffering but actually entrenches the kind of structural conditions that cause the suffering through these camps. So that's my first point. And the second one, I said that this isn't a refugee crisis but a hospitality crisis. 
And by saying that, I wanted to underline that the central problem here is not the refugees. The central problem is the way that they're being received, the way that they're being treated, and the way that they're being managed by Western European states in particular. And just to be clear, although the 1951 Refugee Convention determines refugee status individually, not for groups, the vast majority of people arriving in Europe, those from Syria, Eritrea, Afghanistan particularly, make an extremely strong case for refugee status. Most of them are very likely to be granted refugee status. And the numbers are indeed large. We hear a lot about how this is the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. But given the size of Europe, they're certainly not insurmountable. And just to remind people of the basic statistics here, um, the 10 host countries in the world that have the largest number of refugees um, are all in the global south. And those 10 countries have 60% of the world's refugees. And Lebanon, a country the size of Cornwall, hosts over a million refugees, which is 20% of its population. So in terms of sharing the burden, or to put it rather better, to sharing the responsibility, Europe is not pulling its weight in any sense at all. So many of us at the Refugee Studies Centre at Oxford have been trying to shift the terms of the debate from focusing on these refugee numbers to focusing instead on the failure of hospitality, the failure of the global system for managing refugees, and we often call this the refugee regime. And one of the biggest problems with the refugee regime is actually its central principle, which is known as non-refoulement. And this word from the French refers to the primary obligation that all states have not to return people to situations where they're in danger. Of course, the principle on its own isn't actually the problem. It's actually an amazing principle, and it's quite remarkable that it exists at all. It's one of the cornerstones of international law. But the problem is that non-refoulement only applies when the refugee is actually in your territory. That is the obligation. That's when the obligation starts under international law. But you don't have any hard obligations to refugees who aren't on your territory. So just to clarify, once they get here, they're protected and they can't be returned. But this creates the incentive on states to arrange what we call a non-entry regime. And basically, a non-entry regime is the practice of states to try and prevent or discourage refugees uh, getting their foot on the territory in the first place and therefore triggering that legal obligation. And how do states prevent or discourage refugees from getting here? Well, there's a variety of methods, and I'm sure you're all familiar with many of them. You make their lives very hard on arrival, so to be not seen as a soft touch. You place them in detention. You give them vouchers that make them stand out in communities. You create restrictions on how and when they can apply for asylum, and then you penalize them when they don't meet those restrictions. You impose sanctions on airlines that bring refugees to the country so they never actually get on the airlines in the first place. And you boost borders that are actually a long way from yours, giving money to often unpleasant regimes in the process to prevent refugees from getting even close to your country. So all of these are part and, pa part and parcel of the non-entry regime. And my point is really that design and shelter and the role of architecture has to be understood in this context. Because this context creates the spaces of suspended movement. It creates these places where refugees need to live. It creates the poor conditions like the jungle. And the biggest irony and the biggest problem with the situation is it forces refugees <clears throat> to enter our countries illegally. And the only way they can do this is dangerously. And that's what causes so much death and suffering. 
And sometimes we just need to take a step back and realize what a ridiculous situation this is. We have this very strong legal obligation not to return people to situations where they may um, be at risk of persecution. But our whole system of managing it relies on it not kicking in until people are on our territory. So therefore, we keep borders tight, we force people to take illegal routes to enter our territory, and that generates the smuggling industry, it generates the loss of life in the Mediterranean, it generates people dying when they're crossing at sea, and of course it generates spaces of suspended movement. Just before I end, I want to um, uh, highlight one policy proposal that, again, many of us have been trying to push, and this this is the idea of the humanitarian visa. And the humanitarian visa allows people to travel to a country safely where they can properly claim asylum. And the idea is this would prevent the situation of people risking their lives in leaky boats crossing the Aegean when there are, in fact, perfectly good ferries doing the same routes that you and I could take for maybe 10 euros or 20 euros. But if you don't have the right passport, you have to risk yourself on a dinghy and pay thousands of euros for the privilege. And that's really my aim, to focus out on this context and to point out, and we can do this in in questions, that really the limitations of design and the individual shelter, and however wonderful we make this individual shelter look as architects, is uh, always going to be destined, in a sense, to fail if we don't also think about these big contextual political questions. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Tom. And uh, I invite Bashar uh, Hassan to, to, to speak. Um, about his, his, his camp journey uh, during the last 14 months. Uh, good evening, and thank you, Dr. Arit, for this. I'm uh, very happy to be here to the, on the UK soul and to see this pupil and uh, to listening for the refugees and to welcoming them as a very make me happy. Um, I don't know how to start and where can I have to start with the journey that I have already seen in different countries, in different places, all in all of the Europe. When I was starting with lots of refugees, not just uh, my family, it's lots of Syrian refugees in Syria that they escaped because of war. There's Iraqi refugees because of lots of different cases, like religion, and there's uh, ISIS terrorist that you cannot, when you, f- you cannot feel safe in your own home, you don't have any way to stay. You have to find a way to, to, to go to somewhere in peace and start a new life. So where you can find it in all the Middle East, all closes the door and the border from the people who are living close to these countries. While in Europe there's lots of people, uh, like we've seen experiences and we've seen images and um, uh, we can find in history. So how they will coming refugees uh, after the Second World War, even the First World War, like doctors already said about that. Um, I, I can't go back to the Greece, but before telling this about my journey and my story, I want to remind something for everybody. When you wake up in the morning, how you feel if you cannot take a shower? How you feel if you cannot take a shower for seven days? 
What about 10 days, 20, maybe one month? So these refugees, they could not take a shower for two months. One of them is my mom. She could not take a shower for 40 days while we found out this a net small animal inside her hair. How do you feel if you are eating the same thing every day? Pasta, and it's not pasta. It's just they put in some hot water and they're giving to you. How do you feel if you cannot see TV for one year? Or you cannot change your clothes? We cannot go to the cinema, to swimming. I can forget about coffee or somewhere, or sport, or study, or reading. This is all happening to refugees. Everywhere. Not just on, in Europe. There's Cambodia, Africa. This is what happened in Greece. We were stayed three days in the forest, hiding ourselves. We were not sure that the gendarmerie is meaning marines of Turkey, the shooting refugees in the way, many Syrian refugees dead. Well, when you're crossing the border, you have to walk or you have to pay for who? The smugglers. That the budget of the smugglers in one year, more than 60 billion euro for all of the Europe, while well, you can help them, like doctor said, the humanitarian visa. It's less than this money. We walked three days without food, water, clothes, and it was raining, October, heavy raining, 200 people, with babies, pregnant women, in different color, different culture, different language, Arabic, Kurdish, Afghanis, Iranis. When we try to continue our journey to come to where? German. Because we heard from the news that they were welcoming refugees. But when you're entering the Europe from through Turkey to Greece, all they are like acting the same and they're using the same philosophy of humanitarian or human being? Of course not. When you see the Kamitas, it's meaning the uh, Greece Marines coming to like in the border, they're walking with a car to see if there's refugees to take them back or to reporting them back to Turkey. Which kind of refugees? These refugees who are walking, but those refugees who already pay to the smugglers coming from through the Icelands, they are okay, they can't go. They give you a paper, just like green card, if you want to go to USA from Middle East. You can't go to German. But if you walk, because you cannot pay, you've been, like, put yourself in the rescue and you have to be ready for everything, even die. And then, because there's no, no camera, there's no presses, there's no human 
eyes to watch what's going on in these countries. They will separate, they will do whatever, whatever they want, even raping, even what's disgusting about the human, they will do. That's how I lost my mom for 47 days. So I'm asking you, if you are, I know this is a different society, but if I'm asking, talking about the Middle East society, mom is like a leader, the same level of God, believe me. Asia and Middle East, it is like that. Well, I have, we have five brothers. I'm the oldest, and the others under 18. When we lost our mother without any reason, just because we couldn't prove that this is our mom. And it's not just my mom. 21 females in different ages. They were set free after one hour. They put us in jail for one day. And after they said, because the prime minister said, all refugees arriving to Greece, they have to go to the camps. And the police put them in different camps. In where? North of Greece. Which means Cisaloniki, Oristiada, Drama, Paraneste. And if you're living in the camps in Greece... Just imagine how you will survive while Greece in uh, economy is uh, down in the low list of the all Europe. They just give you pasta, like I said before. This pasta is just to put in the hot water, a little bit salt, eat if you want. If you not, don't want, it's not my business. Forty-five days we were living like that, different camps, thousands of refugees, not one hundred or two, four thousand. And after the prime minister said, refugees will be free in different camps, from Greece to Cisaloniki to these places. We all out. People was happy. But I'm not lucky because my mom, she didn't have any phone or no money to make a contact. Even you don't have internet. After 47 days, looking different camps, 73 camps, 16 camps just in, in, in Greece and in Macedonia, Serbia, Slovenia, Croatia, Austria, German, Belgium, then France. The only thing that I could use is my mom picture to showing the refugees and the police and the, 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 the captain of the camps. Did you see this woman? No. Disappointed again. And the question how we survived, how we could eat. If you don't have money. Red Cross. Thank you, Red Cross. They are everywhere and they give you food everywhere.
Victor Hugo was, uh, wrote a book about the mother. It is a famous one, I think. Many, people, many students should read this book. Mom is something that when you lose, or when you already lost your mom, I'm sorry, but when you're losing your mom, then you feel. Or when you will be mom, then you will feel what's mom meaning. The mom of human. But can we find any humanity? Or can, you, can we show any humanity for refugees? Just in here, there's a, a friend of mine. He's a refugee. He came from Iraq too. Because his religion is not Muslim. But it seems to be he was not welcoming in, in, in many different countries. So is there more stories about, about me and my mom all happening again? Or we have to find a way to all together, like in the English code, saying one for all or all for one, one hand to say no, it's enough. Now this is it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Bashar. And I, I, I really recommend that you, you can all go, uh, visit the website uh, of The Guardian uh, and, and many other newspapers, actually, to read uh, Bashar's story and uh, the way he, he was looking for, for his mom uh, in all of these uh, camps all over Europe. And I now uh, invite Dan uh, to talk about, a bit about the uh, Cambridge-Calais uh, connection. And, um, and after that, we'll have a bit of time for questions and uh, discussion. I do know what I'm doing. Hello, everyone. Um, I got involved with the, the whole thing uh, with, with the refugee crisis in Calais about a year ago when I saw a Facebook site from CAMCRAG, the uh, Cambridge Calais Refugee Action Group, and I can see many of my friends here have been involved throughout the past year. Um, I could speak at great length about all the activities we've done, but I'm just going to give you one little corner of it. So uh, just as a way of introduction, these are, this is what the, the Calais jungle looked like before there was very much there at all. Um, there's a rough plan of... Uh, of where the different parts were when the southern part was still there and you can still see the southern part there uh, and another map for it, which was there. So very, way back in June there was this, the beginnings of this church and uh, you'll see why I'm, I'm introducing the church, it's quite iconic but um, by, by the end of June it had gained a bit more structure and then became uh, covered in plastic and there was a famous song of praise uh, in August um, then in October, I went on my first convoy. I've been over 14 times now, uh, mostly at weekends, and uh, was given this uh, um, amazing environment where shelters were being prefabricated, and I threw myself into it and started building shelters. 
we, they had these jigs set up to build them. Um, so we, we, we constructed those. And the next day, we took them on site. So there was this work, this tool shop in a shed there with this wonderful flag of the world. And we got spades and stuff to make the ground flat. And it took us about three hours to make this ground flat enough to put the pallets down. And you can see that we're now erecting the, the, the shelter sides that we'd, we'd made. And there you can see the church in the background, which is why I was showing it to you. Um, and this gives give you an, an idea of the, the designs for these prefabricated shelters uh, insulated with, with silver. And uh, this is as we finished construction of it. And there you can see from the back. And finally, we got the roof on it. And there was this double shelter where, where some people lived. And so that was October. And uh, in November, I went back with my daughter. There you can see. And it was much wetter then. And you can see there's more shelters around. I built one on the side there. And so Cam Crag have been running convoys every month, roughly. Um, and I've been on most of them and sometimes been in, in between times. There's been a, a huge amount of effort from, from Cambridge. And we've uh, raised over £30,000. And uh, that mostly covers just the ferry costs. And then we plow money into the organizations there so I typically spend about a thousand pounds on food at the kitchens there so you, you can see uh, how things developed and in December I took the whole family across and you can see a rather nasty slash had developed in the back of the, the shelter uh, which, we, which we tried to patch up I put a big board across it now you can see that it's even more built up uh, this is so every, every month that I went back I wanted to check on the shelter to see how it had done I only did you know, just this brief weekend visits. Um, other people, like Gronje, had spent much more time there, and so, some of the volunteers have just devoted their whole life to being, being there for the whole year. So I, I, I feel humbled beside them. Uh, in February, um, it was, there wasn't really much room to build anymore, but you can see it was, uh, uh, it was still getting more built up. And some graffiti had appeared on the back of the, the, the shelter. Présence donc quoi's, and goodness knows what the... Uh, what it all means, but uh, by March uh, it had gone a bit beyond repair. The, the French authorities had destroyed it and laid ruin to it. However, that was not the end. I went back in, in June. You can see that the scrubland was starting to go back and most of the, the litter had been removed. With volunteers regularly go on trips to, to pick up the litter. Um, in July, it had amazingly all grown up uh, I don't have the photos here, but there were also many poppies that had grown up um, and very, very poignantly reminiscent of the fields a hundred years ago where my grandfather was fighting in the trenches. And August, you can see the brush is starting to die down. And uh, a few weeks ago, the brush has now turned to, to brown. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the rest of it is shortly to be just completely destroyed. And I just wanted to add these couple of pictures at the end, the little oasis. If you can see through between these two shelters, this is in a slightly different part of the camp, there's a, a willow arch. And if you walk up to that arch, you'll see this lovely little patch that was created by a 19-year-old Afghan lad who's just got together some of the junk around and turned it into something beautiful. So um, that was a very fast run through. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you very much, Dan, and, and to all of you um, for these very fascinating and different perspectives about, about camps, uh, about the jungle and other camps uh, in Europe and, and beyond. I would be happy to ask you all questions, but since we really don't have much time, I'll open uh, the floor uh, for questions uh, for the audience, if there are any um, any questions from yeah. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, It depends on where you're, you are. I mean, Calais is a camp of transit, and one of the slides that I showed, in fact, is an architect, Sudanese architect, working with one of us, um, whom we met on the first week we were there. And we met a lot of other architects subsequently, and there are plenty of doctors, plenty of nurses, and all of the rest of it. But Calais is a camp of transit, and one of the challenges, I think, in terms of establishing structures there and community structures there is that people don't to intend to stay and don't particularly want to invest long term in any project. That said, there are a lot of people who are active, who are living in the campus as residents and who are trying to contribute. Particularly, there was a nurse who was the only out of our service uh, who was there, and I think Shakir left in, anyway. Few, few months ago, um, so you do see that. But but the, the fact it's interesting because a lot of people also ask you why why what about the local what about the community what about the relationship with the community, but the notion of what the community might be is quite a fluid thing as well. But in other camps, it could be different. Yeah, I mean, just to add, it does depend very much on, on the context. But for me, as a scholar of humanitarianism, one of the interesting things about this situation, particularly in Calais, is the absence of the professional aid organizations. Um, it's all being run very much like humanitarianism was, I suppose, 60 or 70 years ago um, by normal people, by volunteers, with very much the eth ethic of putting what you can get in the back of a van and driving down there and seeing what you can do. And I don't say that in a dismissive way at all, because one of the interesting things about professional humanitarianism is the extent of disconnect that many aid workers have from the people that they're trying to assist. It's very top-down, it's very bureaucratic. People don't tend to get numbered and put into categories. They tend to be turned into figures rather than uh, a real human-to-human -human connection. And, and, and you're not getting that kind of bureaucracy in the camps. I think there are probably some different challenges that come with amateur humanitarianism, but it looks differently. And without wanting to go on any more, the big aid agencies are struggling a little to make sense of this situation and I think act effectively for very much the reasons that I'm giving, that it's indisputably a political issue and if they get involved in it, they're getting involved in domestic politics and possibly alienating their supporters by taking what's perceived to be too left-wing a stance. I mean, the other thing that's remarkable too, though, has been the dearth of professional people in the response. So there's been a huge lack of architects, huge lack of civil engineers, huge lack, an enormous lack of lawyers acting in the camp. There's a hell of a lot of, you know, the whole thing is about being about onions and carrots and jumpers and firewood and gas and all of the rest of it. But the solutions that we really needed, in particular, lawyers, you know, a year ago. Uh, weren't there and I would also say civil engineering, energy generation, all of those kinds of things as well. I was one of the few architects ever around. And um, yeah, just to, to answer you more directly, there have been a large number of refugees who 
have got pertinent skills who have brought them in to play. Any other questions? Um, I have uh, oh, a question. No, sorry. Yeah. And they say it's a crisis of inequality, it's a crisis of war, it's an environmental crisis. So they make it very clear why refugees are having to leave their homes um, and make it very clear that it is a political crisis. Yes, and, and no, but, but, but just to say, you know, this. Um, it's an ugly word, but this humanitarianization of any issue um, is very often done in order for humanitarian agencies to protect their space from the encroachment of politics. And this perception that humanitarianism is an apolitical space, it's something that ha happens in the interests of values and morals rather than politics and interests, um, is, in my view, a persistent myth of the sector. The former High Commissioner for Refugees, um, Sadako Ogata, used to say, there are no humanitarian solutions to humanitarian problems. And what she meant was humanitarians can't come up with the solutions. They can just put on a sticking plaster, but the solutions, um, the genuine solutions need to be addressed politically. But if you take a step back, that's the most bizarre phrase that any professional could say. I mean, imagine saying that there's no nutritional solutions to nutritional problems or no legal solutions to legal problems. It's basically just a way of distancing yourself from the real issues and refusing to engage with them. really good question and you know one of the things I'd really like to say in response to that and I know Dan would feel the same about this is that we are being kept in the dark the politics of exhaustion is playing out here in a big way everybody's tired it's been a year we've fought many battles we fought many court cases and yet today the appeal that was made against the demolition asking for better census information was um, thrown out so that appeal will be will be reappealed we hope but we don't know. From day to day, we don't know whether the police will be in tomorrow, whether they'll take out, that's, and that's how they do it. And, sorry, as to what, what our response will be, then we will have to see what happens. The people will keep coming. They will keep leaving Afghanistan. They will keep leaving Aleppo. They will keep leaving these situations that they're leaving. So um, what is predicted is that many camplets will splinter all over the region, and a lot of services are trying to figure out if they can stretch as far, you know, as two hours drive one way and two hours drive the other way, and if they have to go mobile. But we've never done this before. We haven't at Lou. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've been supporting Dunkirk as well over the past yeah. year, but Dunkirk is now facing basically an existential crisis. And, um, you know, having been previously supported quite a lot by the by the the mayor it's now being allowed to or being forced to shrink and uh, becoming a nastier place to be um, in the past couple of months Cam Crag we've been supporting a small camp which is about 50 minutes south of, uh, of Calais um, and we expect as as Gronje says that there will be a lot more even more illegal camps and it will be much harder to support them 
but we've, you know, we're still raising money. There'll still be the warehouses there. We'll still be sorting distributions. It's just we'll probably need more vehicles to try and get round and distribute it. And they won't have water and they won't have sanitation. I mean, they have horrific sanitation and water situation right now, but the other camps will be wild camps. I think we'll take a couple of final questions. Uh, no, my call is that humanitarian agencies should become re-politicized. Humanitarian agencies shouldn't retreat into the uh, rhetoric of neutrality and impartiality that they've occupied for so long, and they need to recognize that these situations are political and take political stands. Not that they should retreat at all. Uh, but I should just clarify, that's my position as a scholar, but it's, it's, it's very firmly rejected by most aid agencies that I work with. Um, maybe one final question. Sorry? Yeah, the One of the problems is nobody wants the jungle to exist, at least of all the people that are there. So uh, if they were allowed to come over here, they would just disappear into society and start working and be productive. They wouldn't need special shelters being built for them. Um, uh, yeah, and just to say, that's why I said re-politicisation, because there is, of course, a very vibrant political history of aid agencies, particularly in the UK, going right back to the foundation of Save the Children, which was basically a Fabian project in the 1920s. But I think some of that has been lost uh, since the 1990s. The whole industry of international humanitarianism became profoundly bureaucratic and professionalised, um, and things have been quite different since then. Um, I think we'll have to, sorry, <laughs> we'll have to uh, close um, now, uh, but before uh, we go, I just want to uh, mention in the Cambridge connection, because we are uh, here, uh, that there are leaflets here of uh, Camp Crag. Uh, if you want to volunteer or help in Calais or from Cambridge, uh, you're welcome to, to take them and see how, we, how you can help. And I want to, help, to thank you all for uh, joining us uh, this evening. And please uh, join me in thanking the members of the panel for sharing their very interesting perspectives. So thank you very much.